and good morning here from the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX. Uh, now, what kind of cook are you? Well, I think I'm going to infuriate my guest today because I am what you might call a random cook. Sometimes I do something really good. Sometimes I do really well, inedible stuff. I just sort of chuck stuff into a pot and I eat it. And my signature dish is what we call the doormat. <laughs> uh, uh, my guest today is uh, Assistant Professor uh, Nenad Namovsky, who is from the University of Canberra, Food Sciences and Human Nutrition, and is also at the University of Newcastle as a Senior Lecturer and a Research Fellow with the Alberta University in United Kingdom. That's right. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning to you too, Rob. And uh, also joining us in the studio to help out with, uh, well, parallel matters, Jacqueline. Good morning, Jacqueline. Now, your background is as a psychologist, yes, is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. And uh, we're going to throw a few questions at you on the question of food. Now, I should say you are the, you, you and um, Nanad come as a, a pair. So you're here today on Fuzzy Logic Now. Cooking. Cooking. Food nutrition. Let's just start off with what do we mean when we say the word cooking and what's the significance of what does cooking do? Okay, well, see, Rod, it's very interesting when you start talking about a cooking because all of us are doing it at one stage. And, but what really cooking is, is preparation of a food in order to be a more appealing and more applicable and more digestible for us. Uh, and application of heat takes a main procedure in any form of a cooking that we are using. Whether that application of heat is to increase the heat or to reduce it down uh, in order to have the final product. So application of the right sort of... Now we should say that your background is prior to being a researcher and university person as a chef. That's correct. Yep. I used to work at uh, Newcastle, uh, New South Wales. Um, we used to burn my trade, or I shouldn't say burn my trade, uh, particularly in the cooking, but I used to uh, work in a variety of different types of restaurants over there. Um, we learned my trade here in Australia, and um, then basically I said, oh, I just want to see what is behind the food, rather than just cooking it out and serving the food out to the customers. So you've gone on to the next level. So let's go back to the cooking. So sure. the application of heat primarily that's the main thing, but there are all sorts of other things like you're adding ingredients, you're cutting it up and you might be sieving it and processing it exactly in lots right. of different ways. Exactly right. So one of the examples is, let's talk about a stew. I mean, um, there's only a few people that actually haven't tried any form of a stew. Um, if you're trying to prepare a stew, it all depends on what, what size of the vegetables. First, what kind of vegetables you're going to use or what kind of a meat or what kind of a food ingredients you're going to use in a stew as a, as a final dish. It also depends on where you're going to source those ingredients from, how you're going to cut them, how long you're actually going to spend the time in preparing them, how long is that stew going to be on a, on, on, on a heat in order to be cooked. So you're preparing the food to be something to be enjoyed, uh, something as you know, a pleasurable experience as well as nutritious. Exactly. So now what's the impact of putting, let's get to the technical part of this now. Sure. We're going to talk more about the experience of eating and I think Jackie will have a few interesting things to say about that. What you apply heat to something? Yes. Now I'm guessing that there's lots of different answers to this question. So, well, let's just say, oh no, I went to lunch with my workmates the other day, mm -hmm. and I don't think this is a fair thing to do to fish, uh, battered fish. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I don't think a fish deserves being battered. Battered. <laughs> 
But, but let's just talk about that as, a, as a, an example. What's going on when you batter fish? Okay, the reason why we batter fish is, um, the, the primary reason is to actually preserve the moisture in the fish once it's been cooked itself. Also, when you're preparing the batter, uh, because the fish is going to be a fried uh, in some sort of a fat, uh, you're trying to preserve the amount of a fat entering into the fish itself. So the battery serves as a coating mm-hmm. in order to cook the fish. Um, so you seal the fish in, in like a little edible container. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's it, perfect example. So it would yeah. be like you're sealing the fish in an edible container, serving the fish or sealing the fish, um, searing the fish within... Uh, the container that can be eaten, mm-hmm. rather than just uh, having uh, dipping the whole fish into the into the fat oil or fat or oil or whatever whatever medium we are using for a cooking. So now you are very sensitive to the temperature you use when you're doing this, I, I would guess. Absolutely. Yes. If you're using the temperatures too high, you're going to burn the on the outside, yeah. uh, and you're still going to have that gooey. Uh, Yep. Um, very weird texture-like. I don't know how to explain it, oh, but very jelly-like on the inside between yep. between the crust, between the batter and the fish itself. Right. Uh, if the temperature is uh, too low, it's going to take you a long time to cook, and oil will literally penetrate through the batter, uh, and you're going to have a very oily uh, final product. Uh, but if you have got the temperature anywhere between 175 to 200 and 200 degrees centigrade, it's a perfect time to actually keep the um, keep the structure of the fish, but also keep the structure of the batter itself. Yeah. And when we talk that about the cooking, sorry if I can just kind of extend one of the things is when we talk about that about the cooking, there's a lot of a talk about the formation of um, a different toxic substances during the cooking. One of the first things that pops up in our head is the recent uh, concern about the amount of acrylamide that can be found in yep. in, in the deep fried foods. And acrylamide, yep. happen, acrylamide develops um, due to the reactions of a particular types of sugars and proteins in the food product itself. Um, and it causes uh, severe problems with the humans in a large quantities. Now, if you have got a temperature just right, and the temperature just right is, as I said, between 170 to 200 degrees, 185, 190 degrees Celsius, the amount of those compounds produced within a product that you're cooking are going to be significantly lower. So it's still going to be there, but not to a great extent, like in a high Okay, so there's health impacts of uh, how you prepare. And I've heard this with barbecues, that that if you blacken the chops too much on the the hot plate, that that you generate those acrylamines. Is that true? That That is exactly right. That is exactly the same point. So that uh, beautiful, crusty texture that we got from the cooking on a barbecue, yeah. Um, chops, sausages, steaks, anything along those lines. Something yep. that is that really nice black and dark brown color. Uh, that is a byproduct of the what is called the Maillard reaction, and that is a, something that the byproduct of the Maillard reaction can actually have the amounts of acrylamide in. Now, there is no need for a scare on that because we have got one very good organ that can actually filter it all through and get rid of some of those compounds. It's called liver. Mm-hmm. So still enjoy your barbecue, still enjoy your chips, and still enjoy your things. Ah, uh, now that is a theme that we want to explore later in the program. Which, but that's it. that's a really good point to raise, though, isn't it? Because there's there's so much information out there uh, and misinformation, so much fear and so on. But I just want to go back to our battered fish for a moment there, because I'm still dwelling on that on that that fish. And maybe Jackie, do you like battered fish? <laughs> Personally, myself, I prefer crumbed fish. <laughs> so that's just a slide. 
um, one of our daughters, if she gets her hands on it, would eat battered fish oh, all in fact, the in fact, time. She, in fact, she's here as we speak. What? Would you, you want to say something to uh, tell us about how you, do you enjoy fish? Big voice? Okay, Big voice. She, she's, she's crunching her shoulders, and I think the answer is you're not. Yes, she's nodding. No, she's not nodding. Okay, she's not used to being on the radio. But uh, the reason I brought you in here, Jackie, was because it's about the experience of eating food. And, and there's something about crunchy, the crunchy texture of the batter on the fish that, that is appealing. Absolutely. So, so um, for children who are low sensory or children who don't feel much, they like to have a lot of texture, a lot of bite, a lot of crunch in their um, food that they handle. So they often like crisps or chips or that really crunchy service where they crunch and into... And salty on the outside as well, as you can... It, yeah. It, yeah. If, if it's a seafood, yes, salty, but that real crunchy part that you chew so into. So it's not just the taste, it's the, it's the texture and so on. That's correct, really yeah. important texture. Now the ma food manufacturers put a lot of time and money into figuring out how to make food crunchy and to keep it crunchy. Absolutely. There's a lot of research that is going on. One of the main concepts is that we keep forgetting about the sound of the food. And I know that we, uh, we talk about the flavor, we talk yes. about the color, we talk about appearance, we talk about the textures, how does it all look like, what, what a beauty that is. And that is right, that is really nice to have that because they are the sensors that we have got. One of the aspects that we keep forgetting is the sound that the food makes. So for example, try to imagine that you're eating a soggy crisps. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, should I crunch on the radio? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you have got those crunches. You know the sound of a, I'm trying to make those crunches uh, sounds, but you know those crunches of a crisps when you're having them, you're watching the um, game of football or you're watching any event and you have got a crisps and, and that sound is actually more appetizing when you're eating that particular food. And I've heard research that uh, people rate a food as more fresh when they play crunchy sounds through headphones. That is exactly right. Yeah. So one of the one of the concepts, actually, I'm interested. I'm glad that you mentioned that because one of the research one of the research ideas that we are trying to do at uh, University of Canberra as well is to record the sounds that we are doing that that people would make with a food and try to see how those different types of sounds can be utilized or can be used in order to determine how much individual eats. Oh, that was UC research I'm quoting there. Wow. One of the, we are just at a very infancy of those type of researches, so we are trying to get the, 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 the recording of the sounds and to see how does that actually affect us, how does that affect the food that we are taking, how does that affect the food that we are having to take. From my perspective, all you do is have to think about breakfast cereals. So uh. cornflakes or rice bubbles, the children will tell you in a min minute, if you pour the milk too soon, it gets soggy and nobody likes it. And the packets say crunch, crunch, honey crunch, or exactly something like right. that, don't they? But that's right. It's light, it's airy, it's crunchy. You have this perspective of how you think it's going to be, and you add warm milk, and the child goes, no oh, thanks. It's all, right. it's all It's soggy. old, it tastes not nice, it doesn't have that fresh, so vibrant flavor. What, what is it about the crunchy, then, do you think, that, that is, is appealing to... And what we're talking about now is because this reason why I'm so pleased to have you both on the radio today, there's so many dimensions to this. There's the hardcore technology. You mentioned the liver, acrylamides, you know, there's the chemical stuff. But then what we're talking now about is the experience. Absolutely. And, but, but for a, an organism, for a humans, an animal eating a food that's crunchy... 
Well, when you think of the different parts of the brain for sound, when you, if you, let's say, take a stick of celery, can you imagine if you stuck it in your mouth and there was zero sound? Uh, That would just... It's not what we envision. So you have not only do you have this celery, you have this burst of juice that comes out and the snap that goes in, and it it starts up another sensory in your body. So your experience is not just a taste; it's a smell, it's a sound. So it's a, it's a whole constellation of experiences. It's like when you go swimming. You know, you you feel the splash of water on your face, the the temperature change. That's exactly you get right. Moved up and down in the waves and. Uh, okay. Is there an evolutionary background to this? Is, it, is there an advantage to us thinking, apart from just enjoying the sensation, is there, do you think, an evolutionary, uh, is there a signal about the freshness of the food or something? Well, I think there on? is. I think there is, and it's, it's really important to actually f- see from, the, the, as, as, as Jacqueline said, eating a celery or eating any form of a fresh vegetables, first thing that you associate when you tell to somebody fresh fruits and vegetables is their crispiness and their appearance. So they have to look nice and firm and, and ready to be eaten, which indicates to us that those foods are ready to be eaten now. Now, we have brought that in from uh, with us in growing up through the evolutional perspective as well that we are going to pick and choose those foods when they are ready to be eaten rather than just... Oh, so, uh, so if I leave the apple sit for too long and, and, and it's lost that Christmas, it goes slightly mushy and it's not nearly so pleasurable? No. That's right. It's going to, the, whole, the whole perspective of it, oh, that apple is subconsciously, I would dare say, is that you would uh, turn around and say, oh, this is not really good or this is not a food the nutrition value is and I think there's other elements to it so it's not just the crisp we rely a lot on what everything looks like so if it looks the right colour it looks no dark marks or anything like Mm. that then then we set up oh that looks delicious oh I'd love to have a bite but as soon as you see an apple cut and you start to see those dark marks Everyone's is kind of like oh no no thank you no the sort of suck and and the colour of it I notice when you pick up an apple and if it's getting a bit old the skin goes a bit soft and wrinkly and and already you're preparing yourself for a less than, than a less appet- a less appetising meal so yeah, it's, you know, yeah. it's a less appetising type of a food so yeah. from a nutrition point of view how much is the food degraded like if that apple is not quite as crunchy as it was has it really lost that much. Um, it, it wouldn't lose significant amounts. The, the levels would be um, lower, obviously, than uh, the levels of sugar, the levels of some of the compounds that you mentioned earlier, antioxidants. They would be lower from the, from the freshness perspective, but that apple will still have quite enormous amount of so nutrients. Don't just, don't just chuck it out. Don't then. just chuck it out. It can be utilized for something else. I mean, you know, it's like we only have to go back about 20, 30 years ago when the food really was not chucked out. We didn't have enormous amount of food waste that we are having at the moment mm, and that's 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 right so yeah. we, you know it's like we were utilizing the foods that were uh, old or the foods that were not being prepared for a jams for example are we going to talk about jam we can talk about a jams and later you, you have a, a story <laughs> about uh, golf ball quince jam which yeah. i'll hear later <laughs> sure. I, I think there's another element to it though when you anticipate something you you set it up already in your mind how it's going to be how it's going to feel so when you, even though you're saying that the quality might still be in the ingredients when you actually get to pick it up and you and you anticipate that this is going to be fresh and shiny and firm and then you actually pick it up 
you're disappointed yeah. and the enjoyment actually decreases simply because you're like uh, mm, there's sort of like a discontinuity that's, that's correct and a, so a, a disconnect yeah. and now the plants themselves are manipulating us aren't they because they change the colour of the fruit to, as a signal for us that's right so, so the whole idea of ripening of the fruit is uh, we basically see it from the color perspective. We see it when the fruit is ready to be picked up. Yeah. Um, one of the things is I quite often I have used to hear in, in when I was cooking is uh, an example of a capsicums. So the people will say, choose a red capsicum because it, it's got a bit of a fra- flavor. It's got a more flavor than a green capsicum. Or you would choose a green capsicum only if you have to put something green into the dish that you're making. It's completely wrong. The green capsicum is actually ripe capsicum. It's ready to be eaten. It has got a different flavor, and you wouldn't use it just because of the color or just to bulk it up. And the red capsicum, on the other hand, is same. It's much sweeter. It has got um, more of the sugars in it. Um, well, when we talk about sugars, we talk about good natural found sugars within the product itself, not the added sugar where we can talk about that later. Um, but they are kind of the things that they're two different, although they look exactly the same, they're effectively two different types of vegetables. Well, fruit, but vegetable. Uh, <laughs> our guest today, our guests... Today on Fuzzy Logic, uh, Dr. Assistant Professor Nenad Namovsky and Jacqueline, are you Namovsky? So we apply heat or to a food, and then what are we doing to the food? What's what's happening inside that food? Okay, well, yeah, see, it's depending on what amount of a heat we are doing, and depending on what we are actually want to do as a final product. So we as a humans, we would like first to see what the final product is going to be, and then we are trying to apply it, modify it to actually reach that final stage. So during the process of heating. There is a lot of changes that happen in a food product. Mm-hmm. Um, the moisture is lost. The, so we are losing the moisture because of the sheer application uh, of the heat. Assuming you're not boiling or steaming the food. Uh, sure. yeah. That's right. So, so we're, we're, we're talking about like a hot plate or frying pan. Yep. Grill. So like a barbecue grill, yep. hot plate, salamander, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are losing the moisture, and because of that moisture loss, uh, we are start forming the crustiness on the surface of it. And what, once the crust has been formed, under quotation marks, on the, on the sheer surface of the product, uh, what the, the, the moisture can't escape within the product, so it can't escape out, so it literally is going to go towards the center. And that could be one of the reasons why we, and we say that um, meat that is closer to the bone tastes, tastes nicer than meat that is on the, in the middle of it. Oh, okay. Because so of that sheer moisture movement and uh, sheer flavor movement. And this is going back to what we are discussing about the crunchy food, it's the texture of the food as much as anything, yes? As much as what is happening yeah. within the food itself. Yep. That, that's exactly right. So yep. um, with the food as well, when we are cooking it, a lot of changes start happening. So the proteins start being denatured, which means that the proteins start to be break down. Um, sugars start to be uh, caramelized or they start to move or they start to move from one area to another. The water moves as well. Minerals are going to remain within uh, within the food product itself because they are literally very hard to get to, to, to get rid of them out of the, the whole solid component of the food product. So a lot of changes start happening. When we talk about a cooking, it's also important to realize that um, simple ingredients that we use during the cooking can increase or decrease the nutritional value of the food product itself. Right. So, uh, yeah, so what's happening to the nutrition in the food? What, what's the impact of cooking to the nutrition that's accessible? 
So the nutritional accessible nut or the nutrients that we are trying to get, so all the vitamins and the minerals and uh, macronutrients, macro, um, uh, macronutrients themselves, they will change during the they will change during the during the cooking step. One of the examples we had a bit of a chat earlier would be an example of on a, on a tea, what what we have talked about. Yes, um, in fact, let's quickly reprise the Ask Fuzzy from last weekend. Yep. So about green tea. Perfect. So, regards the green tea, there's a lot of a talk about the green tea, how beneficial, beneficial health effects of a green tea. It's uh, cholesterol lowering, improvement in cognition, um, reduction of cardiovascular disease risk markers, etc., etc. Yes, that is all to a certain extent true. Um, and, but we also have to think about the beneficial compounds that are found within a tea. So, we take a dry tea bag. Uh, and we put, in particular, green tea, and we put it in a cup, we boil the water, we pour the water into it. Once you pour the water into it, 100 degrees centigrade, water goes in. As soon as you pour it in, the temperature is going to start to drop down. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, we can't drink that, first because it's too hot, so we're going to burn ourselves. So, it's about 70 it, degrees? It's about right? 70 degrees that we can yeah. actually start yeah. drinking the water. And yeah. Usually, it's defined that if you grab a cup with both hands, mm-hmm. and you can hold a cup, uh, teacup that way just by both hands surrounded by both hands that is a perfect time to actually drink the tea so the temperature will drop anything from a 65 to 75 to 80 degrees maximum um, and then we can actually start sipping on the tea um, and then by the end of a teacup is finished uh, majority of us would have still a teacup that is that would uh, contain a liquid in it that is about a 40 degrees um, some of us would leave it and it would cool down, we'll drink it cold. Now, that's great. That's a concept of drinking a tea. What is actually happening with the ingredients? In the tea, there are the compounds, antioxidants, called catechins. Catechins, they're very strong, very good. They're, they're those things that give you that bitterness to a green tea. Yep. Yep. Yeah? So once we take those uh, compounds, once we start uh, drinking them, what is actually happening with them is, as the temperature starts dropping down, they actually start oxidizing. So they start degrading themselves. Which is ironic, isn't it? Because the antioxidants are oxidizing, is that right? That's exactly right. But they can only hold the antioxidant capacity or antioxidant activity only for so long. They can't hold the antioxidant capacity or activity for a prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. So if you keep them in an exceptionally hot environment, they're happy, they're stable there. As soon as the temperatures start dropping down, they actually start oxidizing. And they're starting to degrade. And so the nutritional value is being lost. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the nutritional value from the, tea, from the antioxidant perspective has been lost. Basically what is happening is by the time you reach the temperature of 40 degrees, um, would, and that would take something around half an hour uh, to 45 yeah. minutes, uh, you have lost more than a half of the antioxidants that the initial tea at 100 degrees had. So by the time we sip on it and we drink it, yeah. We already have got about 30-40% left in a teacup. Oh, so, so you could do a chemical assay of, of raw tea, raw green tea, and say there's this much antioxidant catechins in it, uh, but you're not actually taking that much yeah, in. That's exactly right. And that, that's really interesting. Like A very good colleague of mine down at Newcastle University, he has actually done this study and he destroyed a couple of uh, instruments. <laughs> not, he didn't destroy instruments, he destroyed a couple of the columns to, in order to analyze it. He literally boiled the tea, at the start, analyze it when it was really hot, when it was at 100 degrees Celsius, automatic, um, straight away injecting and analyzing it at 100 degrees. And then he took a time to actually analyze it over a period of time, so at 90 degrees, 80, 70, 60, etc., all the way down to a yep. freezing point. And there was a significant amount of loss during just because of that, during that, just that cooling period. 
or a normal that we would call cooling off the tea itself. Mm-hmm. So by the end, when so, you so what starts with a lot of lot of the the uh, good ingredient uh, mm-hmm. is lost, and then of course you swallow it. It goes into a highly acidic environment in your stomach, and uh, how much right. of it actually? It, it, and the antioxidants is the whole thing in the nutrition sphere. Yes. Uh, <laughs> is it what it's cracked up to be? Ah, listen, when you talk about the antioxidants, one thing is to talk about the antioxidants of their beneficial effects. And their beneficial effects, uh, in an example of a tea, so we drink it, only about 2%, up to 5%, I would dare say, of those antioxidants from a tea will be absorbed. So from the 40% that you have got taken in mm-hmm. at the end of the intake, only about 5% of that total will be absorbed, which equates roughly to about 0. 0.025%. So I think in your, in your column last week you said you had to drink about 10 cups a day. That is exactly so right. So you'd be, you'd be floating around the place. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so once it gets into your body, right, so yeah. it goes into your bloodstream, you know, the, the tiny bit that makes it that far. That's right. And then what happens? Okay, so once it gets into the body, um, it gets into the, uh, into the stomach. In the stomach it's quite safe. So once it reaches the stomach, because it's an acidic environment, these catechins, they are, they're not going to degrade as much right. uh, because the acidity has dropped down to below 2. Right. Um, then it actually has to be absorbed into the small intestine. Now, in the small intestine, the environment is very alkaline. So you're talking about a pH levels above uh, 8 all the way up to 11. Um, and in, do- in that environment, it's very unsuited for these antioxidants. So they start degrading there. Uh, it also depends at which point in, a, in the intestine it actually is going to be absorbed. So how long is going to travel through the small intestine to the point of absorption? Um, then once it actually passes into the system, uh, then they have got uh, a claim to have a beneficial health effect. Like anti-aging. Anti-aging. And, and so on. And that's yeah. right. So they remove the free radicals. And we know about the free radicals. They're just basically electrons that are uh, compounds that have lost an electron. Well, well, basically in the process of cell biology that it produces these free radicals uh, and the antioxidants mop it up. That's, that's right. That's roughly the story. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So antioxidants would come in and it will literally mop up these um, toxic compounds that are found within the system. Mm. Um, but how much of the antioxidants were actually within the system? Uh, well, now, now he, he's the one, and maybe you can comment on this, Jackie, and that's uh, detoxing. You know, th- there's something about detoxing. Do you, Is that something that you've looked at at all? You know, this idea that if I go on a liver cleansing diet... That's oh. <laughs> <laughs> Dear listener, you should see Dana just shrug his shoulder and, and, and sighed deeply. I, I think, um, and you brought up some good points about what's happening with the nutrition in the food. Often we might eat too much and then we just have that sense where we just don't feel well, we don't feel like um, we're our new you for the beginning of the year and we just want to cleanse our body. And so we really do seek out certain things that will complete that feeling and will engage in those type of activities. Is it sort of like a, a guilt abatement plan of some sort? I think there often can be. There's, there's this nice throw now that we really want to be healthy and, and look after ourselves. But I think particularly after a festive um, month... We over, overdo it. We always tend to overdo it with family favourite foods. And then we kind of go forwards to, okay, I really want to cleanse myself. I really did get involved in all that lovely cake or all the stuff that we do find quite guilty. And so we think it's important now to just stop and clear it all out emotionally. 
So it, it's kind of attached with our emotions, how we feel about ourselves, and and the quantity of food that we take in, and the types of food that we take in. I, I wonder if there's, if there's actually any rationality. I mean, from a psychological point of view, there's a very clear logic going on here, but does it actually make any sense? Um, <laughs> does it make sense? Uh, some of the diet, some of the detox diets that are out there are an, an absolute shambles and I have to say this this is my personal view of it um, there is a lot of information that is out there on the market and it's exceptionally confusing for pretty much everyone um, from the diet perspective um, one of the very interesting things is that let's let's use a, I'll use an analogy of a car um, let's say you, have, you drive a car and your lights stop working um, you will take a car to the auto electrician um, auto electrician comes along, fixes up, replaces a fuse, does whatever. Uh, you sit in that car again, you start driving it, and then, then a head gasket blows up. And obviously, one of the first things is that you need a new car. Uh, but let's say you want to keep it, you go to the mechanic, and mechanic fixes a head gasket, and you get a new car. Now, why are we not doing the same thing as a humans with our foods and with our diets? So you, you don't take the car to the florist. You don't take a car or to the you florist. You don't take a car to the newsagent. You don't take a car to the newsagent. You can take a car to the hairdresser. You take a car to the individual that actually knows about food. That is so a train. You, you're saying where we get our information about nutrition. That's exactly right. Where right. do we get our information about nutrition? If you need, if you, if your body is a car, take your body to a registered dietitian. They are individuals that are highly trained. Uh, they are registered with a registering body that is highly influential and very, very good body. I'm not a dietitian, I have to say that. I'm a food scientist, molecular nutritionist. Um, but those individuals are there that have spent years of a training at schools, at universities, uh, in a the practice. They're the ones that actually know about yeah. what is the matter with the body and what kind of a diet or what kind of foods or what kind of under quotation marks, cleansing diets the individual should be on. So let's make this clear. Is there such thing as a cleansing diet? Um, uh, there, there are other things as a cleansing diet that can be used. Um, but you obviously have to be very careful because if you're trying to exclude one particular type of food out of your diet, you're posing enormous impact on the body. And that has to be regulated and that has to be monitored. Oh, so you should get professional advice before you do something like that? Absolutely. You should get definitely a professional advice if you're trying to do something like that. Because if you're excluding a one type of a food out of your diet or one group of a foods out of a diet, you can also deplete your body out of, a, out of some vital nutrients. Let me just take an example of uh, if you're mm. trying to go on a vegan and vegetarian. Now, I'm not going to go into the reasons why we go on to the vegan and vegetarian. There's um, a variety of different reasons. Mm. But in particular, if you're going on to the uh, completely excluding a meat or a meat products out of a diet, so it's more of the vegan style diet, uh, over a prolonged period of time, you can actually become a depleted in a vitamin B12. Now, the vitamin B12, we can only get in absorbable quantities uh, from the foods that are of animal product. Yes, yeah. I actually have a personal story on this one. I'd like to come back to that. But uh, Jackie just wanted to, sure. to chip in there. Sorry, I, I just usually start rambling on about the things. Well, but yeah, that, that's, uh, no, that, that's, that's interesting because I do have a very personal take on that and I'll tell you my quick anecdote. But uh, first to you, Jackie, you're going to chip in? Mine was more on the extent of with all this new information and the, the health and as we talked earlier about the, how we cook the food and the taste and texture of the food, many of us now are time poor and we, we, we hear this information and we're trying to give the best that we can. Yeah. I think what 
sometimes we try to look for is how can we make sure that we maintain that crunch, use the right types of food, engage so that our family can have this lovely fresh quality mm. of food as well as um, the fast pace that we live in how can we be able to use the team? Well, at, at the risk of diverging on a whole new theme, mm. I just would like your perspective on this, Jacqueline. That, that is, in an age where there is so much fear, so much misinformation being peddled oh, about the place, true. and me as a science communicator, and I'm very concerned about the global effects of uh, carbon dioxide and pollution and overpopulation, etc. We're kind of flooded with this stuff, and then there's people who, who distorting things. How do we convey something to people in a way that isn't threatening or, or, or that, that, that is, dare I say, digestible. Mm. How, how, do we, how do we sift through this? I, I think it's a very good question because it's a lot of fear-driven. You know, we fear about what we want to give to the family or not give to the family, and that goes back to that guilt component. You know, oh, I shouldn't have had that or I shouldn't have had this and... And maybe we can sometimes uh, eliminate things or take up. We're driven by what the next idea is that we hear about and go, maybe I'll try that. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we seek advice often to go back to a more balanced... So it's, it's about uh, trusting people who have the expertise, the authorities, is that what we're saying? That's exactly yeah. right. You know, it's like when you, there's a lot of a guilt associated with the food. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I love food. Yeah. I like that concept of the whole eating where, you know, there's, to me, I've, I come from that society, I've been brought up like that, that we all sit around the table, we have a big meal, and everybody's happy, and it doesn't matter what a meal is, whether that can be a dirty dripping on a bread, or it can be um, lobster thermidor. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's a matter of sitting down and enjoying food. It's a social experience. It's a much. social experience, and I think that that's what we keep forgetting. Yeah. Uh, because we are more concerned about, oh, don't eat that because that contains too much of a saturated fat or that contains too much of a sugar. Just try to think what you're eating. Uh, where is that environment of, that you are sharing the food with? And, and the food is going to actually taste better. Mm. I think we might break to another bit of Beatles. Our guests today, Pro Assistant Professor Denad Namoski and Jacqueline Namoski, Psychology, Food and Nutrition. And uh, but just before we went to the break, we, you mentioned the word guilt here, uh, and that was, well, we, we feel guilty about eating food, and then marketers play up on this. This is organic. This is not organic. It's a bit more fluffy stuff. What's that? Um, does it make any sense? Uh, listen, the marketers will take an opportunity, and and this is, and I understand it because you are being in a business and you're trying to make money and you're trying to utilize an opportunity that you that you have got presented in front of yourself. Um, so that is the whole point, concept of a business. You're trying to make money from the marketing, the food industry would actually. Um, and some of the businesses in the food industry will actually play a very nice area or a very nice game in order to get more money. Um, and that is playing on a feeling of a guilt. Mm. Um, so, for example, let's have got um, an example of, as you mentioned earlier, um, the, the eggs, chicken eggs, ah. free range versus the caged eggs. Effectively, you're getting a same egg. All right, there are a slight differences in the uh, nutritional value of those eggs, um, but why are the free-range eggs such a dearer eggs in comparison to 
to the cash banks. One of the reasons could be because of the more of the labor cost in order to pick those the eggs co- the up. The cost of production. The cost of production, and yeah. I agree with that. That that is very nice in a line because the people that are working there they need to be paid. Um, but also some of the marketers will play that game of a guilt. So the price would be a bumped up as well from the guilt perspective because you know that you know the poor chickens they are in the cages they are treated horribly and I, I agree with um, all of the um, aspects of, of, of that uh, view on how the chickens are treated and um, you know every one of us has got different opinions regards that um, but the price does not reflect how much of the cost also has been utilized for it so the price that you're paying at the final product has also been marketed up uh, to meet Okay, so the, the price you pay for something is as much to do with the psychology Absolutely. as the cost of something. That's exactly right. right. So it's not only the, the, the matter of the production, it's also a matter of so what has been added to it. A caged eggs, free range, barn eggs. What about organic, inorganic? Is, is that a meaningful difference when we're talking about nutrition? Uh, from the nutrition perspective, is if you're talking about a the flavor, there are some differences between organic and inorganic foods. Uh, particularly from some of the uh, fruits and vegetables, but it's more sort of the acceptance of the overall life that would the overall lifestyle that individuals would have and their beliefs that is actually implicating the nutritional benefits of those foods. Now, the organic foods have been actually labeled as being chemically free foods, which I find absolutely funny and ridiculous because uh, foods, they are composed of chemicals. <laughs> so how can they be a chemically free? Uh, so you're paying for air, which is, again, a chemical. Um, so how are we actually going to look for it? Now, from the inorganic or non-certified organic foods that are available there on the market, you're still getting the amount of nutrients that that apple or spinach or corn or so whatever it is marginal, has. Marginal differences. The differences would be a marginal. Now, the people are worried about the toxicity of some of the chemicals or some of the pesticides or some of the herbicides or whatever we are using, any form of the sides within the food production. Now, there is a, a very strong body in Australia uh, for Sands, for Sands Australia, New Zealand, and they literally monitor these food products. So, um, the, the the chemicals that that the farmers are importing, they're under strict regulations. So the chemicals the farmers are using on their field and the crops, the the farmers are actually trained in how much chemicals they can use per hectare or per meter. Yeah. Or some chemicals do pass into the food system, uh, but they're not reflection. They, they're not going to cause a, or they're, they're to those levels that are tolerable levels by our body to actually uh, so we, deal with we could be reasonably confident in in Australia that we when we buy something food that uh, it, I mean there must be some exceptions I guess but for the most part um, we, we could be pretty confident that it's for the majority of the foods that we have got and I would dare say for over a 99% of the food products that we have got there on the market we can actually say that they are safe for human consumption and that they are, they are there just basically because they have been tested and they have been yeah. uh, the, the methods that are used behind that are applicable to our food system uh, and that, that's what we pay for uh, by having through our taxes having a government uh, the bodies that look after these sorts of things that is exactly right now can you comment uh, not, i'm not going to talk about specific cases but very recently in the last week or so in canberra we've had outbreaks of salmonella yeah what's what's the story with salmonella in general okay we're well, in salmonella is um salmonella is a quite a nasty bug to actually be contracted and uh, once the individual gets that bug it has got a severe health problems uh, that can be 
pause for a severe health, detrimental health problems, you know, later in their life as well. So um, one of the examples of a salmonella poisoning or some of the system, some of the um, things that are associated with that would be through um, high amounts of vomiting, diarrhea, generally feeling unwell, uh, high temperatures, complete dehydration of the body. Massive loss of fluid from the body. Massive loss. That causes your gut to leak like a sieve, doesn't it? That's exactly right. right. That's yeah. a perfect explanation. Literally, yeah. you're leaking on and, both and, hands. And, and then you just um, eject all of the body, you know, the water, basically. I think there was a right. thing in the paper, this, this girl had uh, five or ten litres of, of water pumped intravenously into her. Yeah, and uh, there was, a, there was a, I think there was a, uh, a guy I was reading in the Canberra Times, I think, the other day, uh, online, uh, it was a guy who lost about 11 kilograms in the past two weeks yes, or something along yes. those lines. I'm not sure, I can't recall the name of the person. Really but nasty. I, yeah, it's really nasty, and I really hope that all those individuals affected someone else have recovered well. Um, but it's a really nasty, a really nasty bug to contract. Um, the salmonella is um, found, and it, it, it actually can be transmitted through the use of utensils, but also through the use of the uh, food that has not been treated appropriately. So milk, egg, dairy, uh, even a lettuce can actually uh, transmit to salmonella. Um, from there is the, the the food bodies or the food organizations are monitoring these outbreaks and they are reported and we know about the so outbreaks. So it's, it's, it's pretty it's pretty easy to get a salmonella outbreak in a kitchen, isn't it? That's right, particularly and, if you if you're so not raw, using raw chicken, I believe. It. Yes, raw chicken. Um, some sometimes eggs can have a transfer of salmonella. The shell of an egg. The, the shell of an egg. Now, and that's a very good point. Like the shell of an egg, if the egg has actually not been um, if the egg has not been washed. Uh, after a pickup, so it can be found in. All right, now you you can you can help answer a a long running dispute I've had with a friend of mine, <laughs> and so we we had backyard chooks for a long time. Yes, and I I'll, I do like chooks. They sit there and they eat all your kitchen scraps. Yep. They fertilise your soil and, and eat your, ki- your kitchen waste. But anyway, he said you shouldn't wash the egg. Uh, it's been through the gut and it comes out and, and dare I say it's crappy. Yep. <laughs> And I, we always wash the uh, the stuff off the outside of the yep. eggshell. And he said you shouldn't do that because the eggshell is absorbent and the stuff gets sucked back into the egg. And can you clarify this, please? I can. Okay. So basically, once you get, if you're in a home environment, from the home perspective, um, you shouldn't wash it because that's right. The egg would contain the coating once it's been plopped out of a chicken. It would contain a coating around that would prevent the absorption of some of the um, some of the uh, air in, inside the eggs because the shell of the egg is actually porous. Right. So if you're washing the egg, I would advise the eggs to, eggs to be washed in a cold water that would actually remain the integrity of the shell itself and you don't scrub them too much. So the air will literally get in. That is one of the reasons when you get the eggs out of the supermarket and if you, ha- if you pick them up and you have a look at them, they're shiny yep. because they're covered in wax. Ah, okay. So to just... just Go through this again because yep. I'm slow. What what should I? So I've got I picked the the, uh, pick the, egg the sponge up. egg. I go into the kitchen with it, and of course I've got it all over my hands. I'm going to wash my hands. Yep. Wash it up in a cold water. What am I going to do with that egg? Wash it in a cold water. Uh, put wash it in, in a cold water. Wash it in a cold water. No soap, no detergents. No soap, no detergent. Put it in a container. Put it away. Ah, so you do, but you you don't leave it in the water for too long. No, you don't leave it in the water for too long. Then ah. when you're about to cook that egg, my advice would be take the egg out of a packet. Yep. Give it a good scrub with a with a with a warm water. Make yep. sure it's been washed up. Yep. And then crack it up and open it up and use it. Ah. 
Okay, I'm going to have a word to David about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did they open up another can of worms? Oh, oh we'll leave it there. <laughs> a whole can of eggs, a whole, whole, whole packet, packet of eggs. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, now, we mentioned organic food, and uh, we were discussing a moment ago, Jacqueline, about the you know, organic versus inorganic, and, and, and then as saying, marginal difference in nutrition what about genetically modified foods ah genetically modified foods there's this a great big fear about the genetically modified foods and the fear is under the um i think it's primarily driven by um some of the the movies and some of the media that we have got in there um the genetically modified foods are under a very 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 strict control in australia Mm. So, uh, there are some of the genetically modified products and genetically modified crops that are available. There's around 30 or 40 of them. I'm not 100% sure, but you can actually visit the Fasan's website, and it, they, they will give you a strict, they will give you a detailed list of which products or which seeds mm. are uh, modified, which seeds are available. Who is the fact? Canola is one of the big ones. Canola is one of the big ones as well. Yep. Canola is one of the big ones, particularly because of linking back to our story about the antioxidants. Yep. Uh, canola, uh, sorry, well, cotton seed oil as well. Uh, mm. So the cotton seed is yep. another one that is uh, genetically modified, and that is linking back to the antioxidant stories because in a, in a cotton seed there is this great antioxidant that is found. It's called the gossypol. Now the gossypol is uh, bought a plant natural. It's a product that plant naturally produces. So when insect comes and attacks her, the, um, the the reproductive system of the insect is diminished. Is that the boll weevil they call it in America? Uh, a different pest. It could be, no, no, it's a different pest. This one is uh, the boll weevil is about a corn, I think. Um, so basically, what they are doing is uh, the plant produces this gospel, Insect comes, eats it, dies out. It can't reproduce anymore. Basically, the life cycle of insect is stopped. Now, gospel antioxidants. Theoretically, it should be good for us, but it's actually quite bad for us because there was a studies back in the 70s and 80s um, where they realized that a gospel can be used in the manufacture of a male pill, male contraceptive pill. Now, once they have run those studies, um, they have realized that um, thinking the same pattern of antioxidants are being good. Um, once they have uh, put, uh, put individuals onto, the, uh, onto this product, they end up with a hypokalemia, which means a quite um, uh, low levels of a potassium in the system that caused then irreversible neurological problems in those participants, but it also caused um, irreversible uh, fertility problems. So those guys were literally um, non-fertile, or a sterile, uh, and they had a quite significant so health th- th- problems. So this is an example. So superficially, antioxidant, and I'm puffing my chest up, must be a good antioxidant. That's right. But it's actually toxic. It can actually be a toxic. That's exactly right. Another example would be from the green tea. When we uh, the, Last year, there was uh, uh, an, an indigenous individual back in Western Australia that has been consuming the uh, green tea supplement with a protein supplement with another weight loss product. And what effectively that caused, was for this person to have a liver failure. So our body can, doesn't necessarily mean what too much of a good thing is a, uh, good. It actually, too much of a good thing can be a very bad thing. So what, what we're saying is in this whole topic of food, and, and Jacqueline, you were chipping in earlier about our, the psychology of food, this is a big thing. You should look at it not in isolation like antioxidant tick or crunchy tick. It's 
it's the social experience it's everything all together it's it's a, or dare i say holistic is, is yeah absolutely it's a holistic approach to the whole food idea to the whole concept of eating to the whole um why do we eat and so how is it actually going to taste like really big social emotional connection and not only do we want to provide food or make food that we feel is good and nutritious to our families we want the belief as well that what we're doing is good and so with that goes along this whole perspective that I'm I'm providing for my family I'm giving them a healthy nutrition and so we're guided by that information and we do want holistic so um, it's a sense of ethics as well as just the, the the nutrition and so on yes yes and and to actually be able to take that I mean Food is so, so emotionally tied. Um, it's tied to our health, it's tied to um, illnesses, and often when a family member is sick, we provide a certain type of food mm. to help, like hot or, lemon or drinks. I'm depressed. Ah, oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, there was, it's very interesting that when you talk about emotional feeling of the food, of uh, how much uh, the, uh, the state of our um, uh, current state of our psychological state, how that is actually affecting the food. The guys up in the University of Queensland, they they, they have realized that you know eating certain types of foods when you're depressed or anxious is going to uh, you're going to be able to cope better. And there's the physical sensation of uh, the, you know the, the eating the chocolate which is melts in your mouth and so on. So, Nanad, before we went live, I asked you for the elevator executive briefing. You've got 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Okay. Well, food, it cannot be, food and eating and dietary patterns or a diet overall uh, cannot be only taken up as a perspective for one food ingredient or a one particular type of a food um, as, as, the, as, the, um, uh, as a whole concept. We have to think about a food and eating and the health benefits of these uh, uh, foods that we are consuming, overall perspective from psychological, social, dietary, foods component, chemical perspective, everything brought in together. So it's a richer, more interesting way. Anything you'd like to add to that, Jackie? Uh, just a holistic, wholesome approach mm. encompassing all areas that Nana has just spoken about. Well, I think we're, we're getting. I better explain the, my signature dish, the doormat. Yeah. It's a sort of a pancake, and I one day I chucked in uh, some uh, some flour of uh, oh God, what was it? The little the little nut things. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And I served it up to myself, and it was like eating the doormat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, a couple of things we've got coming up. Uh, oh, today's Ask Fuzzy we, is about proprioception, and that's from another friend at the University of Canberra, uh, Haley Teasdale. She's doing her PhD in that, helping people with Parkinson's. That's a sense of where your body is, and that's one of the things you need to work on if you've got Parkinson's terrible, terrible yeah. d d disease. Uh, and Haley's a great researcher, I know. I, I really, really enjoyed uh, being in contact with her. Uh, last week, of course, we had the uh, green tea, and we didn't get time to talk about the jam and the pectins and your, uh, your quince golf balls <laughs> that didn't quite work out. Uh, and a quick personal plug here because uh, in a couple of weeks' time I'm doing a little gig and if you like science, you like music, the experience, here we go. Another sensational thing, I'm doing a gig with a, uh, a classical guitarist. This is sponsored by the Canberra Symphony Orchestra. So on the 7th of March, 
you can join us for a celebration of sound, journeying through the ears. We're going to go through ears. What is sound? What it's like to hear music? It's a free concert, and it's at 5.30 at the Hellenic Club in Wodan. And Philip, I look forward to seeing you there. Bit of science, bit of fun, bit of music. Uh, Steve Allen, a classical guitarist with us. Look forward to that. Thank you, Ned and Jackie. Great to have your company today. Thanks Thank so you. much for having us here. And we'll get you back again. Catch you later.